If you are visiting today, this is a youth Sunday, so only a few of us don't qualify to be on the platform this morning, unless you're young at heart, like Robert and I are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and for your desire to pour out your mercy upon us. Lord, as we gather, we gather as the disciples before Jesus on that hillside. As we listen to your words, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us today through your holy text, that you'd be uplifted and exalted, that our thoughts would turn to you, and that we would, with expectant hearts, open our arms to receive what you have for us today. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. And I have a friend that um, a few years ago, she grew fond of the saying, no good deed goes unpunished. It seems she was always saying this. When she would describe her time at work, she would exclaim, "Ah, no good deed goes unpunished. Why do I even bother? And then flop down into a chair. You could hear her frustration. You see, she was working part-time at a copy center, frequented by university students and some professors, some of whom were at times occasionally stressed, under pressure, in a hurry, demanding, and at times rude and unpleasant. Any of you who work in the public or private sector, the service sector, can know what she was talking about. In my friend's experience, being nice to a demanding customer, at times, ironically, just tended to make things worse. It wasn't that she was being punished for taking pity on a student. Instead, her good deeds seemed to create negative results. And she told us about one day. She said it was very hectic, very busy, a long day, a lot of things were happening. And this grad student came in, all agitated and irritated in a hurry because they needed something done immediately. And the copy center was going to close in a few minutes. So my friend, who's also at the time a fellow graduate student, she took a deep breath and she took pity on the student. Stayed late, got the job done and helped this flustered and disorganized student. What was the result? A week later, the same student reappeared, and you can guess it, the end of a long day, and the student demanded and expected the same type of service. And my friend told her, come back tomorrow. The reply was, you guys, you don't care about people, do you? I came here last time and you, you helped me, and now you don't. What poor service, and then they left. Yep, no good deed goes unpunished. You know, perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you heard Matthew 5, 7 read, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, I've shown mercy and um, people take advantage. So why be merciful? Perhaps this is how the king felt in the story that Jesus told about the unmerciful servant. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Matthew 18. 
It's a text that describes a mercy. I'm just going to read along, and I want you to listen if you can't follow in the text. Matthew 18. And the context here is that Jesus is describing about forgiveness to Peter. Jesus says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. You know how much that is? One talent equals about 20 years of labor multiplied by 10,000. No wonder this king was trying to settle accounts. Whoever was lending his money was doing a very bad job. And since the servant could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay everything even though it was impossible. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. A hundred denarii is a hundred days of labor. Six thousand days of labor equal one talent. You can see the difference in what was forgiven and what was owed. So this servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until the debt should be paid. When his fellow servants saw that he had, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had the same kind of mercy as you received? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Jesus concludes and says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Did you see the point at which mercy was extended and withheld? The king could have accepted the first offer that the servant had made. I'll pay the debt. And if the king had done that, that would have been mercy because it would have meant that the man's wife and his children wouldn't be sold into slavery. It's a mercy for them. Still, the king did something unexpected. He offered a greater mercy. He actually released the servant and forgave his debt. Some estimates of this story, it's billions of dollars. The guy owed billions and they were forgiven. So what did the servant go and do? Well, he went out and he did not extend mercy to someone else who needed it. And when the king found out, I could just hear the king saying, yep, no good deed goes unpunished. I was merciful, but this servant failed to offer mercy. So I'll rescind my mercy. I want you to imagine, it happens enough times. You go to your bank and you say, please don't foreclose in my home. I'll pay the mortgage. I'll just need more time. Imagine the bank saying, you know what, we're going to forgive your debt. You don't owe us a thing. Wow. Imagine how grateful, how amazed you would be. This doesn't happen. So much so that no one would expect you the next day to go out, grab a friend and say, hey, you owe me money. I'm going to call the police. Those kind of actions are 
opposite of Matthew 5, 7. Jesus very seriously ended the story by commenting that those who do not forgive from the heart will not receive my heavenly Father's mercy. So this is a serious topic. Mercy is a serious topic. And of our text today, I want to ask a couple of questions. How do you live as merciful people? How do we do that? What does it look like to be merciful? And perhaps more importantly, how can you experience God's mercy? That's the most important thing. How do you experience this? Now, over the past few weeks, Pastor Brent has been taking us through the first four Makaria statements. And before we venture into the fifth today, I want us to first pause to see how mercy fits with the other previous four statements. And remember that we're using the word makarios. That's the, the Greek word in this text. And it's often translated as blessed. But this carries a deeper, richer, fuller meaning than a temporary or circumstantial feeling of happiness or even receiving favor from God. Makarios is a state of well-being. Actually, it's a state of ultimate well-being. It's a well-being and relationship to God that belongs to those who favorably respond to the ministry Jesus was offering. Jesus is teaching that a person flourishes ultimately in life as each of the descriptions in these statements are true. The Macarius statements are an observation about a way of being in the world, as Jonathan Pennington wrote. One grows, one develops, one matures into a life that is both pleasing to God and reflects his will, even as God's Holy Spirit transforms your life into the likeness of Christ. Such a life filled with Christ flourishes. And it is the best way to live. There's no better way to live life than in Christ. Macarius is how life, how life centered on God looks like. That's what it looks like. It is more than a short-term thinking than it is about long-term living. Now in Matthew 5, 7, in our verse today, we see that Jesus begins, and that's why I had our friend read the seven verses. Jesus sits down in Matthew 5, 1 and 2, and he begins to teach his disciples a long sermon on the mount. And he begins with a progressive description of being. A, pro- a progressive description of how life flourishes. What does it look like? Now I want you to watch how Jesus progressively describes a flourishing state of being in life. Notice how strange this sounds. This is very strange. You wouldn't expect this. But he lists these first four items that we've already talked about in previous messages as states of well-being. The poor in spirit, those who acknowledge their personal spiritual bankruptcy, you're going to flourish. Hmm. People who mourn over their sin and over the sin of the world, you're going to flourish. Those who are meek, who are humble, they respond to others in their witness of their own spiritual bankruptcy, they're going to flourish. Those who long for righteousness, who desire it, who hunger and thirst for it, they're going to be flourishing. Can you see the progression in the order? First, a person recognizes and acknowledges the depths of their debt to God. I owe God everything. 
and there's no way I can pay him back. Nothing I can do. I can't live 20,000 lifetimes. I still can't pay it back. I'm poor in spirit. I recognize. So the response is to mourn and to grieve, to beg for mercy before the king, the servant, came and said, I owe you. I can't pay it. Please have mercy. So he mourns and grieves over what he cannot do. And he sees the injustice and evil and corruption in the world. Mourns over that. And so the the response is not arrogance or, or haughty judgment of others, but humility and meekness, along with an intense desire for righteousness, to be clean, to be pure in God's sight. A life centered on God contains these attitudes. That's what Jesus is saying. If you follow Jesus, these are descriptions of a follower of Christ. But there's more. There's much more to this than these four statements, to what comes after each statement. Because those who are poor in spirit, what happens? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn over their sin, they're the ones who are comforted. Those who are meek and humble, they're the ones who inherit the earth. Those who long for righteousness, they're the ones who are satisfied. The ones who don't do those things don't receive these things. It's not true of their lives. Progressing from these truths, we come now to mercy. Those who are pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, will be addressed in the coming messages. But it all interlocks, it all fits together in this order that Jesus has laid out for his disciples and for us. For now, Jesus is teaching us, flourishing are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In our time together that's left, I want to do three things. I want to help you understand what mercy is. What is biblical mercy? What does it look like? I want us to understand how to become merciful people. And finally, how to embrace the mercy that God offers to each of us. Most of us think we know what mercy is. What is mercy? Definition of mercy? It's being moved to pity or compassion for a tragedy, for a disaster. And it includes the fear that this could happen to me, so I should be merciful. In fact, Scripture is full of examples of mercy. The one closest that I can find to Matthew 7 is in Proverbs 11.7. The merciful man does himself good, but the cruel man does himself harm. Does that make sense? Look at that. The merciful man does himself good. I thought a person who is merciful does others good. I'm going to have mercy on you. When the king forgave the servant that debt, was he doing himself good? Or the servant good? Well, Proverbs says he was doing himself good. Well, how can that be? Because the merciful flourish in life. Because they receive from God mercy. This goes right back to Genesis. What was God's first response to sin in the world? Mercy. The Lord God made garments for the skin of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Why? Because they had sinned. God made the first sacrifice for sin, and he also made the last and complete sacrifice for sin. God's mercy has been at the very beginning and it's at the very end, and everything in between. Proverbs twenty one or Psalm eighteen twenty five with the merciful you God show yourself merciful. With the blameless you shall you show yourself blameless. And in Proverbs 21.13, 
Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. And finally, in the New Testament, just an example, James in chapter 2. He's talking to believers. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who shown no mercy, because mercy triumphs over judgment. That's why we're still alive right now on this planet, because of God's mercy. He's delaying his judgment. So he can be merciful to us. Yes, God's word is filled with mercy because it's a characteristic of who God is. God is mercy. And the amazing thing is, for each one of you, God has a plan. And his plan for you is filled with mercy. You may not believe it. You may look at your life and go, I haven't seen any evidence of that. But it's there. It's true. But what is biblical mercy? We have mercy. Is biblical mercy any different? Biblical mercy, we can define in this way. It's about God not punishing us as our sins deserve. We deserve punishment. We owe God. He's just in giving punishment. But instead, he prevents gives us mercy. D.A. Carson in his commentary on Matthew describes it this way. Mercy embraces both forgiveness for the guilty and compassion for the suffering and needy. No particular, this is interesting, no particular object of the demanded mercy is specified because mercy is to be a function of Jesus' disciples, not of a particular situation that calls it forth. And the reward is not mercy shown, but by God, but by, I mean, by others, but by God, end quote. And I want to back up there just to clarify. When he says no particular object of mercy is specified, what he means is that a merciful person is a merciful person. People can show mercy occasionally. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a lifestyle of mercy, a disposition of mercy. John Stott in his book, Message on the Sermon on the Mount, he adds, it is the meek who are also the merciful. For to be meek is to acknowledge to others that we are sinners. And to be merciful is to have compassion on others, for they are sinners too. End quote. Now, be clear, mercy is not the same thing as grace. They are related, like two sides of a coin, but they are different. Because mercy is about not being punished for your sins. And grace is about being favored in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it. So mercy, we could say, is unmerited forgiveness. You do nothing to merit forgiveness. It's God's mercy. God's grace is unmerited favor. In our story we read earlier, mercy was forgiveness of the debt. Grace would have been here, I'm going to give you uh, a talent of money to go invest for me. That's grace. Biblical mercy carries more than the idea of compassion, as in I feel or have sympathy or pity. Mercy moves beyond such feelings or attitudes and moves us into the realms of actions. To be merciful includes forgiveness. That is to overcome justified anger or resentment, or debt. To be merciful even can reflect love, loving our enemies. Now as we turn to our text in Matthew 5, 7, it takes us a while to get here, 
flourishing are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We see two related concepts going on here. Two clauses. We see being merciful and receiving mercy. And both of these exist together in concert. They, they, they fit together. A follower of Jesus is described as one who both receives and extends mercy and is, therefore, a merciful person. So, a life of a disciple of Christ lives a life entwined in mercy, immersed in mercy. That's what we received, and that's how we're supposed to become. So, the first phrase, Matthew 5, 7, 8, flourishing on the merciful. You know, you may rightly ask, how do we become merciful when our natural inclination of our hearts is to be selfish? You know, many in our world tell us that it's the survival of the fittest. Be the strongest, be the most powerful, get what you want. Why would you be merciful unless it gets you what you want? It's not mercy. Biblical defined mercy, lived out as followers of Christ, is both countercultural and, when demonstrated, stands out for others to see. Why would a person forgive a million dollar debt? Why would uh, parents forgive the murderer of their child as the Quaker community did several years ago? Why would they do that? Why would God forgive you of your sins? What's in it for them? It's mercy. It's mercy. It's by definition. Now, there are several aspects of mercy that I want to go through with you. And the first is, mercy, to be merciful, is a command. Jesus in Luke 6 36 says, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. We are to be like our Father in heaven. Since He's merciful, so shall we. But again, you can ask, how can I possibly be merciful like God? Is it even possible to do that? After all, I am, we are, weak, broken, sinful people in a selfish world. So how can you possibly be Merciful. That's the first Macarius statement. Flourishing of the poor in spirit. You acknowledge the fact, you realize, even to begin to look at this command and live it out means I can't do it. And that leads us somewhere. It leads us to the realization that mercy is only in Christ alone. He himself is the mercy of God. You see, you nor I are the ultimate source of mercy. Yep, we can feel compassion, we can take pity and sympathize. Who among us has not watched television or, or saw some events online of a tragedy and we felt moved? I mean, watching that video earlier, I mean, I'm so glad it didn't happen before the message because it's very powerful. It took me a moment to recover. Just the simple act of mercy from merciful believers and how it changed their life. It's a great example because it's true. Because it's done in Christ. While this is compassion, biblical mercy goes much deeper. It is the power, the ability, the desire to be merciful when you have the right to punish, when you have the right to judge or get even. It is the capacity to be merciful to those who in no way deserve such a response. And it comes only from and guided only by Christ. 
It is in Christ that God's mercy is extended and demonstrated. The wonder is that the Holy Spirit fills us with that ability, that desire to be merciful, with the ability to obey Christ's command to be merciful is accomplished only in him because Christ's heart in you reflects his mercy. And so it's a condition of the heart. It is a process of cultivating, developing a merciful heart and disposition. It doesn't happen right away. I'm going to be merciful. You know, I tried that this week in preparing this message. I thought, well, I have to apply the message to myself. I have to be a merciful person. You know how hard that is? That is not my natural inclination. I have to actually stop and say, Lord, help me to be merciful. Lord, help me to be prepared to be merciful. Because I was going to be required today. Because I'm leaving the house. And that means people, and that means mercy. <laughs> this is all part of the transformative work of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5, Paul describes it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Yeah, I read these, these, these descriptions all the time. Love, joy, peace, patience. I want to have that. And God says, you have to have it through me. You can't just desire it. It has to come from me. Because only God through Christ can give such a new heart. Only the presence, filling, and surrender of the Holy Spirit's influence in your life can produce biblical mercy. So the fulfillment of Matthew 5, the first part of that, of being merciful, begins and ends in Christ. Those who are merciful flourish in life. Why? Because they belong to Christ. They have his spirit. And therefore they can be merciful. Now from this well of God's mercy that we draw upon, we too can practice being merciful. So the practice of being merciful, it's an attitude. You know, Jesus later on in the Sermon of the Mount, we'll get to that in 2019, I imagine, uh, where Jesus in Matthew 7:12 says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And way later on in Matthew, he says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So according to Jesus, as he amplifies his being merciful, he's really saying it's an attitude of your heart. Biblical mercy is intentional. It's expected. It's normative behavior for followers of Christ. It is being prepared and willing and able and ready to offer mercy. Not to be surprised by the opportunity, but to see that it's going to be coming. Now, you may be saying, okay, are you saying that I'm supposed to be merciful to everybody? Not quite. Because mercy as an action is tempered with wisdom. Remember, remember, mercy is not punishing somebody for what they deserve. But this is mingled with wisdom. Being a merciful person does not mean that you always have to show mercy. Sometimes judgment is required and not mercy. And I'm going to quote John Piper here because he has good words that I like. He says this, God's will is that sometimes we recompense people with what they deserve, whether punishment or reward. Call that justice. 
And God's will is that sometimes we recompense people with better than what they deserve. Call that mercy. In upholding the claims of justice, we bear witness to the truth that God is a God of justice. In showing mercy, we bear witness to the truth that God is a God of mercy. End quote. What at first glance may appear as mercy may in fact in the end not be mercy at all. Sometimes discipline is required before mercy is offered or in place of mercy. Sometimes temporarily withholding mercy is wise. See, those who received mercy from Christ, they came to him and they said many times, have mercy on me, Lord. They didn't expect it, they came hoping to have mercy. And Jesus responds with wisdom. Sometimes immediately mercy is given. Other times there's a delay. And that's why I have these verses in Matthew 15. When Jesus went away, he went to a place with his disciples to district of Tyre and Sidon, which is Gentile, non-Jewish territory. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came and was crying out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Look at Jesus' response. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him. They begged Jesus, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered and he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take a children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O man, your faith is great. Be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Let me ask you, did this woman and her daughter receive mercy? Absolutely. In her desperation, she came and sought his help. Yet it was only as she demonstrated humility and faith that Jesus granted her mercy. Neither she nor her daughter deserved it. And the disciples just wanted Jesus to give her the request and send her on her way because she was bothering them. But Jesus wanted her to express an understanding that salvation is for the Jews first. And her faith was remarkable in verse 27 because she did two things. She acknowledged Christ's mission to the lost in Israel even as she anticipated that Christ's work would spill over to those who are eagerly waiting and expectant of mercy. And Jesus sees that and he granted her mercy and the healing of her daughter. There are times in our lives when we need to momentarily delay mercy until the requester understands the truth and depth of what they're asking. As we turn to the second clause in Matthew 5, 7, we meet the other equally necessary component of mercy, and that's receiving mercy. Flourishing are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, you may be the most merciful person in the world, and if you are, I want to meet you after the service. I want to see what that looks like. But there are always be times when we need mercy. And we need to ask for and receive it. So who exactly receives God's mercy? Who gets God's mercy? Well, it's all here in Matthew 5, 3 to 6. The first 
three, four, five Makaria statements. The first is to acknowledge the need for mercy. I recognize I have a need for mercy. I am poor in spirit. The merciful see their own personal need for mercy because they see that they're spiritually bankrupt. Carson says it this way, it's a heart that confesses one's unworthiness before God and utter dependence on him. That's not enough. You actually have to ask. You have to ask for mercy. And that's the four responses in the rest of the uh, Makaria statements. No one asks for mercy if there's no need. Seeing his spiritual needs leads to four responses. Those who mourn over their sin, they grieve over it. Those who are humble, I can't do it myself, Lord. Those who long for righteousness, Lord, I, I want to start again. I want my life cleaned up. I want to be a better person. I want to be a different person. I need to change. And I can't do it, Lord. I long for righteousness. So what do you do? You ask for mercy. Seeking forgiveness from your debt to God. Have mercy on me, Lord. And then, strangely enough, it's actually receiving that mercy, accepting that mercy. I could go to somebody and they ask me to forgive a debt and I say, sure. And they go, oh, second thought, forget it. No, I don't. I'll, I'll work it out on my own. A lot of people in the world like that when it comes to God. Yeah, I see my need. I like to be righteous. But God, your, your offer of mercy doesn't fit the way I want to live my life. So I'm not going to accept it. That sounds astounding. But people do it all the time. God the Father's mercy is completely offered to us through the death and resurrection of Christ. Your debt is paid by Christ. It's death. Eternal life is given to us by God's grace, Christ's resurrection. If God had just forgiven us of our sins and said, that's it, you're forgiven, go on your way, we wouldn't have eternal life. We wouldn't have a new life, not a changed heart. We wouldn't know him. But it gives us grace. That's why grace and mercy are two sides of the same coin. Yet I know some of you are just waking up now and you're hearing what I'm saying and you go, wait, whoa, whoa, wait a minute now. I got a problem here. Doesn't the text say, flourishing of the merciful for they shall receive mercy? It sounds like uh, we receive mercy because we're merciful. Doesn't the text mean that? We receive mercy because we were merciful? Well, it doesn't really fit. It doesn't really explain what Jesus is saying. For the simple reason that no one can earn mercy. By definition, mercy is unmerited forgiveness. You don't merit it. You can't earn it. Again, I go back to John Piper. He says, when God asks for a record of your mercy at the judgment day, he'll not be asking for a punch time card. You won't say, here it is, eight hours of mercy. Eight hours of mercy I did. Now where's my wage? Instead, John Piper says, God will be asking for your medical charts. You will hand them to him in all loneliness and meekness. And there he will read the evidences of how you trusted him as your divine physician and how the medicine of his word and the therapy of his spirit took effect in your life because you relied on them to heal you of your unmerciful disposition. And when he sees the evidence of your faith and his healing, he will complete your healing and welcome you into the kingdom forever. End quote. Therefore, 
the one who ultimately flourishes are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now I must give you a warning as we come to the close of this message. To refuse God's mercy means, let's be clear, to refuse God's mercy means that you will receive the just and eternal punishment deserved by your sin nature and the actions that you do. That's just a reality. To refuse God's mercy leads to paying that full debt forever and you can't pay it off. Now we hope for better things for each of you. And I urge you to seek God's mercy while you can. If you've never come to God either in a quiet moment and said, God, please have mercy on me. Today's the day. That's the beginning steps of having a relationship with the God of the universe. We acknowledge, we ask, we accept, and then we do what the whole verse is talking about. We live in mercy. Living in mercy. All disciples of Jesus are to be merciful, even as we receive God's mercy. So I have this circle here. Being merciful reflects receiving mercy. And receiving mercy reflects being merciful. They fit together. They can't be separated. We can't be merciful without God. It just doesn't work that way. This is how we flourish as merciful people. It begins with receiving God's mercy and grace as we live in his mercy His spirit fills us with the mercy that we're supposed to have. And we become then merciful people. We become flourishing people because we're merciful for we receive mercy. Let's pray. God of mercy, we come before you and... um, In this moment, Lord, we want to pause before you just for a moment of quietness that your spirit might convict us and show us where we need mercy from you, Lord. Father, we just want to pause for a moment to let your spirit search our hearts. Father, thank you for your mercy. We embrace your mercy, God, knowing that you have forgiven us even though we do not deserve anything but punishment. Thank you for your love that you pour out on us, that you would be so willing to be merciful when we come to you and acknowledge our need and seek you for it. Thank you, Lord, for showing us that we are truly poor in spirit, that we truly mourn over our sin, that we truly are meek and humble before you, God, and that we long for the righteousness that only your mercy can give us. Jesus, come as we finish the service in song and bless us continually with your mercy. Amen. As you go out the doors today and throughout this week, May God's mercy fill your hearts to overflowing 
as he releases his mercy through you today and every day, all to his honor and glory. Amen. Thank you for coming.